My name is Michael Husky, and it's my pleasure to be here to be able to to speak to you this morning to preach. Uh, Pastor Joel's asked me to come and fill in with him while he's away. And the times that I've preached in the past, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. We've been in chapter one every time that I've preached, and we're going to continue that. Uh, we're going to finish up this morning, though. We're going to be reading 19 through 24. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Galatians chapter 1. Now, I hope that you remember what we've covered so far. And if you haven't, feel free to go back and look at previous sermons that we've done in the past. But one of the most important things that we've covered so far in the book of Galatians is what the gospel is, right? Also, what the gospel is not, and also, what is the law of God for? What is God's law for before you're a Christian? And what is God's law for after you become a Christian? These topics are really the most vital and essential part to your Christian faith. They're not the only essential part. There's many essential parts of your faith as a, as a Christian. But these are the things that separate us from cults. These are the things that separate us from all the false religions of the world. Now we have to understand the context of the book of Galatians. And we've gone over these things before. What was the church at the time struggling with? And a lot of it is the same things that we struggle with today in the church all across America and all across the world. But there's five primary reasons why that Paul wrote this letter. And these are vital, so I go over them every time I preach, because this is really our context. We're always going to be covering one of these five things, if not all of them sometimes. And so, number one reason why that this book was written, to correct the churches after a false gospel had been preached and introduced by false teachers. Number two, to clarify the true gospel, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Number three, to encourage the Galatian believers to stand firm, to stand firm, we just talked about that, right? In the truth, the truth of God. Number four, to clarify the doctrine of sanctification. And number five, to clarify the purpose of the law of God. So just to do a, a quick recap of some of these things that we've covered, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to this world. He took on the nature of man. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And then he went to the cross to die for you. And then the sins that we've committed against God was imputed upon him whenever he was on the cross. If you, rep if you repent and if you believe. And then his perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness was imputed to us. That's an amazing gift. And that you were saved when this happened. You were saved from the, from the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on all those people who don't believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ is our only Savior. There's no way that we can earn salvation. That's impossible. If you could earn your salvation, well, then our Lord Jesus Christ's death would have been in vain. You simply have faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that's by God's grace alone. 
And really that's the, the primary beginning of understanding what the law of God is for, the Ten Commandments or the moral law, that you cannot obey your way into salvation. You can't be impressive to God. You need a Savior. You need a Savior who's come and lived a perfect life for you, that's done all these things for you in your place, because we can't. That's the first and primary part of the Ten Commandments or God's moral law. And then the second is that once we become Christians, then we grow in our sanctification. We grow in our Christ-likeness. We become more like Christ over the course of our lives. Now, last time we covered 15 through 18, but I want to read 15 through 18 again just to bring in the context of what is being said in 19 through 24. So I'm going to start reading in 15. I'm going to read through 24. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. Verse 19. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judah, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which, we want, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, God. I just pray that you would help us to understand your word. I, I pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word. Help us to understand you in a greater way and what this passage wants to reveal to us. Help us to love you in a better way by getting to know you. God, I pray that you would just speak through me, get me out of the way, God, and just let your word shine forth by the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you so much. We thank you for everything. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to read 19 through 21 to you one more time. It says, But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. <clears throat> now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So Paul's authority to teach did not come from man. It did not come from himself, but it came directly from God. And that's his point. That's what he's trying to teach us here. He's showing us that he was an apostle even before he met with any of the other apostles. Other than Peter, Paul only met Apostle James before he began preaching. His point here is to show us that he sought no advice. He wasn't going to them to try to understand teaching. He wasn't going for clarification of doctrine or clarification of theology. He already knew those things. He didn't go to them for training. He wasn't influenced by them, right? 
He was not influenced by them in any way. He wants the reader to know and understand that he was not convinced by Jewish converts of his views of Christ and the gospel. He spent 15 days with Cephas, better known as Peter, probably to show Peter that the gospel was the foundation that they both stood on, right? And he, he makes this point that he wanted to be acquainted with Peter, he says here, not learn from him. That's important, that he went to be acquainted with Peter. He went to be acquainted with Peter. He could have also wanted to show that they were all preaching the same gospel. Remember that Paul was an enemy of Christianity before this happened. He was probably the most fierce enemy of Christianity. If you're a Christian during this time, and you heard of Paul, and you heard a knock on your door, and you peeked through the window, and you saw Paul standing there, you would probably be very nervous. And this is, this is why he's going through all of this, to show where he's at now, right? Peter was the most influential and powerful spokesperson in the early years of Christianity after Pentecost, and it would be for the sake of unity that these two apostles meet and be encouraged by one another. They were encouraged by getting together and understanding that they're both standing on the same foundation. Paul wanted to get acquainted with the men that were so close to Jesus Christ during his incarnation. Paul knew Jesus. He was taught personally by Jesus, but his desires was to know more. Not more about the gospel. He already knew the gospel. Not more about doctrine. He already knew that. Not more about theology, but more about those intimate details of what the other apostles experienced while they were with Christ during his earthly ministry, during his incarnation, because he loved Jesus. He loved Jesus, and that's what you do if you love someone. You want to get to know everything that you possibly can about that person. That's why today that we study doctrine. That's why that today we study scripture and we study theology because it helps us to get to know who Christ is in a better way. And if we can understand him in a better way, then we can love him in a better way. Now in verse 20, Paul gives a common Jewish vow here. He says, I assure you before God that I am not lying. So Paul was either an apostle and a spokesperson of God, or he was a liar. And that's what he's trying to say here. Even today, people have attempted to teach the church that Paul's message was different than the other apostles of Scripture. We have people out there who say, well, Paul and James teach two totally and irreconcilable things in Scripture. Therefore, Paul may not be inspired. I can tell you that that's a fallacy. That's a wrong view. That James and Paul are focusing on separate issues that the church faced at the time. And if you guys don't understand that, I'd be glad to talk to you after service on how that they are unified in everything that they teach. They're not teaching different things. But people try to say that today because people do not like the teachings of Paul. There's also a view out there that's called a new perspective on Paul. It's a recent view, and it was made popular by a, guy, by a theologian named N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is wrong, by the way. 
on this. But the people who came up with this view believe that they're the only ones since Augustine who understood the writings of Paul. That sounds audacious, doesn't it? It sounds arrogant and it seems prideful that these people who believe this new perspective on Paul are the only people in 2,000 years to understand what Paul actually meant. Well, the new perspective on Paul teaches this. Justification relates to right standing among people instead of right standing before a holy God. That's one of the views that it teaches. This is a wrong and disturbing view of justification because justification means that you're declared or made righteous before a holy God in his sight. God declared sinners righteous in his sight in a divine court of law. That's what it means. According to scripture, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, alone in Christ alone. God forgives the sins of his people and he imputes Christ's righteousness to them solely based not on what we do, but on Christ, on what he did, on his perfect and sinless life, his atoning death and his resurrection. Justification is a one-time act. I'll say that again. Justification is a one-time act of God. Justification is something that a believer can never lose. Sola fide, or, or faith alone, is also called into question with this new perspective on Paul. And I want to read an article to you. This article is from the Gospel Coalition. And it's entitled, Justification and the New Perspective on Paul. It says this, For them, this is people who hold to this view, to a new perspective on Paul. It says, Justification has two components. We just talked about this. There's one component to justification. That's it. So they're already in the fallacy here. It says, Justification has two components, initial and final. Initial justification concerns who is in the church or the status of being in the covenant community. It is not related to conversion. Initial justification is related to grace, Christ's work and faith, but it does not relate to the imputation of Christ's work to the believer. Final justification is partly based on one's works, although one's works done in the Spirit. Finally, the fifth of the five points is that new perspective authors are not united on justification. One standard view is that initial justification is by faith and recognizes covenant status, while final justification is partially by works, albeit works produced by the Spirit. If you're partially saved by works, then sola fide or, so, or faith alone is incorrect. And here's where you find heresy. This is 100% heresy. Because we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Just as we've been te- teaching and learning all through the book of Galatians. A new perspective on Paul also teaches that divine righteousness is not an asset that can be imputed from God to the believer. Did you catch, did you catch that whenever we read that article? It's saying that, that it's not a divine attribute, right? That Jesus didn't impute his holiness upon you. 
They believe it's more of a covenantal membership, which goes against Romans chapter 1. All, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5. All of Romans chapter 5 has to do with imputation. And also, um, Corinthians chapter 1 deals with imputation. And if you don't understand imputation, I think it's one of the least talked about doctrines in all of, of church history. But it's something we should understand that whenever Adam sinned in the garden, then all of his offspring was imputed that sin. Every person who was ever born of Adam, which is all of us, all of mankind, are born in a state of sin. And whenever Christ came, he went to the cross to die for us. And our sins, those sins imputed to us from our federal head, Adam, were imputed upon Christ on the cross. And whenever he died, all of his holiness, all of his righteousness was imputed to us if we believe in God. And that's why we can stand before God and be found innocent, covered by the blood of Christ. That's why it's so important to understand imputation. The Apostle Paul, as we can see here, he wasn't a popular guy. He wasn't a popular guy then, and he's not a popular guy today in many places all across America, in the church, because you can't get away from justification by faith alone without pitting Paul against Christ and other New Testament writers. Paul's service was unique, but service to God is for all of us. It's for the whole body of Christ, for every Christian. In many ways, we have the same mission as Paul had. We're all called to share the gospel and be careful and accurate with it. As we've been learning through the book of Galatians, we're all called to grow in our Christ-likeness as a body of Christ. And we're all called to give to the church all the gifts that God has given us to share amongst one another. We're all called to do these things. I want to look at 22 and 23. He says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judah, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And I want to focus in on just two words here that we see in, in 22. These two words that says, in Christ. In Christ. These churches were in Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? It means security. It means peace in your soul. It means joy everlasting. It means assurance of your salvation. Scripture makes the statement that you're in Christ or something like that 70 different times in the New Testament. So you think it might be important to understand what it means to be in Christ. This is a picture of being submerged into something. We are submerged into Christ like we're being submerged into the ocean. And in Christ is where all fullness of life dwells. It says that in Corinthians 1.19. It says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. That's in Christ. That we dwell in Him. It's showing that we have all fullness 
of life. We're living the fullness of God if we believe in him and if we belong to him. Not the fullness of what we're going to be one day, but the fullness of God, the fullness of him. In other words, he holds nothing of himself back from us if we're in Christ. Yet he also lords over us as a perfect Lord and a perfect God, perfect in all of his attributes. Being submerged into Christ is a very different picture than what a lot of people paint, isn't it? You're submerged into Christ when he saves you. And now everything, everything in your life has changed. Today, people say things like, accept Jesus into your heart. Like you just accept a little piece of him to make your life better, to improve your life. Nowhere in scripture does it say that. Why? Because Jesus Christ is king of kings. Jesus Christ is Lord of lords. He breathed the universe out of his mouth. Every breath that we have, every heartbeat that pounds in our chest is all from him. He's Lord of everything. He created all things and all things are held together by him. And we think that we can accept him. We don't accept him. We fall on our face and we beg him to forgive us. And we plead with him to wash our sins as white as snow. God accepts us. That's what a king does. A king accepts us. Nowhere in scripture also does it say to ask Jesus into your heart. When you're saved by our sovereign God, you're plunged into him. That's what we've been learning, right? You're submerged, never to breathe the same air again. We become like him. Our desires change. The sin that we once loved, we now hate. The holiness that we once despised, we now embrace. That's the evidence of being a Christian. You see, being in Christ is the most traumatic event in your life. It's also the most beautiful. It's traumatic because you have come face to face with a holy God and you realize for the first time in your life that we all deserve eternity in hell because of our treason against him. It's traumatic because we experience such love in him an incomprehensible love that he poured himself out for us that he died for us to save us from his wrath a love that is impossible to understand it's traumatic to see the dark forces that are at work that's trying to destroy you and then to see the mighty foot of God crushing them into the ground into the dirt to protect you. That's traumatic. And it's also beautiful. It's beautiful to see what sacrifice God went through to save you. It's beautiful to know that you've been forgiven. It's beautiful to know that you're loved with a love that never fades, that's incomprehensible, that is unconditional. It's beautiful to understand that you are in him, that you are submerged into Christ. If you're a Christian, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, just like a fish is in water, and water 
is in a fish. And Paul goes on here. He says, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. He's talking about himself here. This is the evidence of a changed life. John MacArthur calls this lordship salvation. Many people fight against that term because they either hold to what we call easy believism or they don't understand the term lordship salvation. Easy believism is the idea that all you need to do in order to be a Christian is just believe in Christ. Scripture says even demons believe in Christ, right? It's the idea that all you did is pray a prayer one time. It's the idea of a carnal Christian, that there isn't necessarily the evidence of a person being a Christian by a radically changed life. It's the idea that you don't need to bear fruit as a Christian, that there's may, may not even be any evidence of it whatsoever, but you're a Christian because you prayed a prayer one day. Lordship salvation is the response to easy believism. It's the biblical view that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, that's given by God's grace alone, that is evidenced by fruit. And that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with evidence. Is there evidence that you are in Christ? Is there evidence that you're a Christian? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves with an exclamation point. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail the test. You see there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. 2 Corinthians just told us to test ourselves. To examine ourselves to see if we're truly a Christian or not a Christian. And Jesus talks about something in Matthew chapter 7. Chapter 7, 21 through 23 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. This is a terrifying scripture. These are people who didn't test themselves, who didn't examine themselves, who bought into the lie that you can be a carnal Christian. This is the most frightening text in scripture, in my opinion. There are many people who honestly believe themselves to be saved when in reality Jesus never knew them. This is why that we take it very seriously to take the time and examine ourselves to be sure that we're found in the faith. Jesus talks a little bit more in John 15. I want to read this to you. John 15, 1 through 8. He says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, 
and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove, prove to be my disciples. Does that sound like that you can be a carnal Christian? Are you seeing here that lordship salvation is simply a term that has to do with evidence? Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Do you act the part? Is there evidence of that? And some people may examine themselves and come to the reality that Jesus Christ isn't their Lord. And then it brings you to your knees. To beg forgiveness, to beg, to be submerged into Christ, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and set on that narrow road, that narrow road that leads to life. In reality, Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is King of Kings, whether we acknowledge that or not. If not in this lifetime, then you will acknowledge it when you stand before him then it'll be too late. And he says those dreadful words that he says in Matthew 7 that none of us want to ever hear. Depart from me. I never knew you. That's terrifying. So how do you know? How do we know? What do we examine ourselves by? What's the standard to see if we are found in the faith? What's the standard of being in Christ? Well, there's several different things that can help us here. I'm going to cover three things. What is the general direction of your life? What does Scripture say is the standard? And that you're concerned is a good indication that you are in Him. I want to take these one at a time because they're very important. Number one, what is the general direction of your life? This is very important to understand because we all start out as infants. In Christ, when we're in our infancy and when we examine ourselves to Scripture and when we examine ourselves to mature Christians, we're always going to fall short. And that's why that we look at the general direction of our life, right? Now, what do I mean by that? Is your life going in the general direction of holiness, of Christ-likeness? What are your desires? When you sin, does it crush you? Do you have a desire to repent? Do you have a desire to be more like Jesus, to be more like Christ? It's important to understand whether you're lost or you're just an infant in Christ. And that's something that us more mature Christians should be asking too. Because sometimes whenever we look at someone and they claim to be a Christian and we see them fall into sin then we, we shouldn't be so fast to point our fingers at them 
and condemn them, but we should first ask, is this person a baby Christian that I can come alongside and I can help them? Or are they lost? And if they're lost, then we treat them like an unbeliever, but you, you may very well find that we're dealing here with a Christian who's just young in the faith. This is young in the faith. And if we find that, then we need to come alongside them. We need to help them. We need to help them to grow. We need to disciple them. The church often fails at that. The church often fails at discipling new believers. We just want to spit out new converts like a factory. But that isn't biblical. We should disciple them. We should learn. We should mentor them. We should invest our time in young believers, in new believers, whether they're young or old. Some people don't get saved until they're in their 50s or 60s. That's an infant in Christ. We need to come along beside them, and we need to disciple them. We need to teach them. Number two, what does Scripture say is the standard that we should use to examine ourselves? Well, the book that we're studying here, the book of Galatians, gives us this answer in chapter 5. I want to read this to you. Galatians 5, 22 through 25 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You know, there's a reason that this text is so popular. There's a reason why that this text is hanging on the walls of Christians all across the world. Because it's a mirror. It's a mirror that we stand in front of to see what the standard is of the Christian life. It reflects back at us. It corrects us. It reflects back at us and it exhorts us. It reflects back at us the holiness of God that we're called to exhibit to the unbelieving world, to one another in the church, and everywhere that our feet will take us. This is the fruit that Jesus Christ was talking about in John 5 that we read earlier, that you must bear as evidence of being a believer. Do you exhibit love? Do you exhibit joy? Do you exhibit peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness? Do you exhibit self-control? That's a hard one, isn't it? And do you exhibit them differently than the world does? And what do I mean by that? We're all made in the image of God. Every one of us. That means that we have been given certain communicable attributes of God. Whether we're in Christ or not. So how do you know if we're walking in the Spirit or if we're simply reflecting some of the attributes of God? One word. Intent. Intent. Intent is a word that in a court of law can distinguish between a misdemeanor and a felony. It can, dis it can distinguish between being innocent and being guilty. In God's court, the question of intent is based on whether your intent is to glorify God or to glorify the flesh, to glorify you. You see, 
just an example of this, is anybody can give to charity. The question is, when you're given to charity, are you given to charity because it gives you the warm fuzzies? Are you given to charity because you can tell your friends and they can look at you like you're some great person? Or are you given to charity because you realize you're, you're part of something bigger than yourself? That you want to glorify God with your money. You want to glorify God with everything that you have. You give to charity because you want God to be glorified. And you understand that nothing is yours anyway as a Christian. That God possesses all things. And he's the one that's given us anything that we have at all. What he's made you to be stewards of is his, right? They're his and we glorify God with those things. Number three. That you're concerned is a good indication that you're in him. You know, people have asked me many times, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How, do, how can I have assurance of salvation? And I'll often tell them that you're concerned means that you are. Because the world is not concerned with the things of God. Not at all. They're not concerned with examining themselves to, found, to see if they're found in the faith. See, everybody struggles with assurance of salvation. I have. I'm sure that all the, the mature Christians in this church have at one time struggled with assurance of salvation. And that's really a good thing. Because it, it shows that we truly belong to Him. That we want to be pleasing to Him. And whenever we've completed our examination and we realize that we're found in Him, that we're found in Christ, there's really no greater joy. There's no greater peace. There's no greater assurance that you're firm in His hand, that He holds you tight, and there's no way that He will ever let you go. It's a beautiful thing. And I want to look real quick at 24. We're going to finish up here. And they were glorifying God because of me. So what's the end result here that we find of all these things that we've been talking about today? They glorified God. They glorified God. This ties in perfectly with the, with the things that Paul's been talking about. They glorified God as evidence of true conversion. As evidence of walking in the fruit of the Spirit. As evidence of hearing the true gospel proclaimed. They glorified God. They glorified God because of what? They glorified God because of the message that Paul had brought to them. All these things that we've been talking about. All these things that Paul's been teaching us in the book of Galatians. They glorified God because of these things. They didn't glorify Paul. And this is important. They didn't glorify Paul. They glorified God because of God working through Paul. Is that not amazing? I can think of no better way to end this sermon than bringing up the very reason why we exist. We exist to glorify God. And we glorify God in every area of life. In everything that we do. But how amazing would it be that someone else would glorify God because of the work that they could see God doing through you? Can you imagine being in such a relationship with God that other people glorified God because of the work that God was doing through you? 
That's what we're that's what we're seeing here. And really that should be something common in the lives of a Christian, shouldn't it be? Have you taken the time to glorify God because of the godly saints that he's put in your life that's helped you in your walk with him? Have you glorified God because of his work through them in your life? God not only works in our own lives, but our lives through other believers. So we should thank God for them. Thank God for Pastor Joel. Thank God for people in your life that have mentored you. And be that person to these people in your church that are infant in Christ. Let's pray.